Hello, hello. Yeah, hello. Holy shit, we're here. So what's funny is I now hear an echo, but maybe it's not going to record with that. <laughs> so we're going to do it and hope. It's just the universe fucking us, you know? Yeah, like it's an exploratory of some yes, kind. Yes, 100%. It's not even sexual at this point. No. It's a full-fisted examination. <laughs> like We're going to root around and see if there's yeah, a, see I mean, what's going on up there. There might be polyps. <laughs> there might be echoes. Talking about Mr. B. Okay, speaking of which, this reminds me of one of my favorite lines from the classic movie Predator, where the one guy, I can't think of his name, I'm so mad, he's telling a joke, and he says, I was talking to my girlfriend the other night, and I said, geez, you got a big pussy, geez, you got a big pussy. (laughs) And then the guy laughs, he's like, get it, because of the echo. And that's when the Predator records the laugh that he uses, whatever. Don't take this personally, but the AirPods. Are they the problem? I used them last week or the last time we recorded. Okay. Yeah. Hold on. How about now? Now I still hear an echo. Oh, so switch. Can you go to the speaker again and then select? Try it Maybe now. that I would get rid of it. my it echo. It's in there now. Yep. Test one, two. Perfect for me. Oh, Holy. Jesus. Welcome back to another episode <laughs> of Not Your Mama's Therapy. I'm here with Lair Torrance, licensed marriage <laughs> and family mm. therapist. And I'm, I'm Sarah. I'm just here. I'm here as a connoisseur of therapy. And all things ball related. A sommelier of all things and all things <laughs> ball to, related. Had to at least once. I mean, I don't know that I need <laughs> any more titles than that. So, so I'm excited to talk to you today because we have asked our viewers to submit questions that they mm-hmm. have always wanted to ask a therapist that they, you know, okay. whatever. And we got some good submissions, which I'm really excited about. I didn't, however, get dick pics, which I expressly stated I wanted. I consented to it. I said, you just have to put dick pics in the subject line so that Ashley doesn't accidentally open it. Those are expressly for me. But I got some fucking questions about therapy. So here we are. You know, it's a catch all and you didn't catch any dick pics. I didn't get a single, I didn't even get like, you know, that guy who's like really overconfident, but it's probably a solid 3.25. You know what I mean? Like inches. Like I at least expected a couple of those, but no, no. I didn't get them. Yeah. So here I am with some fucking questions and no. Dick pics, yeah. Do you, well, you know if 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 Lindsay keeps any of this in there, you are going to get dick pics. Oh god, and it's I hope not so. just going to be Corey this time, right? I mean, well, he sends them to my private email, but maybe I should like forward him to the not your mama's therapy at gmail.com. You know, the thing is though, like maybe I should add this disclaimer: if you send dick mm-hmm. pics, I mm-hmm. will share them with Lair, not his wife Ashley, but with Lair, and we will review them. Yep. And comment. And comment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. like that's just, that's the, that's sort of like the give and take, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll get some from the greater Norway it feels area. Right to me. Considering our latest ranking. Do we need to talk about that for a moment? <laughs> that's true. We, listen, we are doing great in Norway. Norway loves us. I don't 
I don't know who the five people in Norway are that are listening to us, but I'm grateful for them because. Well, I'm wondering about the six podcasts that are ahead of us. And do they know that we're coming for them? <laughs> Listen, we're coming for them hard. Okay? <laughs> I know I am. <laughs> Fully engorged. Rock hard. <laughs> Honestly, I am just throbbing for Norway right now. Thank you, Norway, for listening to us. <laughs> I, I'm wondering if they need us to come there. If they want to, like, if if there's an all expense paid trip, if you and I do a show from Norway. I'm just saying mm-hmm. immediately, yeah. yes. We're there. If, like, ask us immediately, yes. We will be on the plane. Okay, here's the thing. I understand. No, I know Leif Garrett. <laughs> Was it no, not Leif Garrett? <laughs> Leif Erickson. Sorry, Leif Garrett's a whole other thing. Thank you. There you go. Yeah. So t- that's very all different. I got. So, so I actually watch. There's like a Ice Road Rescue is the name of the show, mm-hmm. and it follows mm-hmm. these guys in Norway. And there's like Bjorn mm-hmm. and Tord, and Bjorn is my favorite because he's always like, "This is my mountain." <laughs> I am the lonesome wolf and it's honestly my favorite thing. So I hope he's listening to it and just, he knows bless you. Beth, bless you. Porn. You may get, you may get a dick pic from Bjorn. God, Fingers crossed. Okay. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> that would be like the highlight of my life. So you want to talk about the, the questions, the questions that were submitted, nothing to do with dicks. Let's yeah. let's, Get on to, you know. Maybe something. Well, that's true. All right. So I have a list of, I think it's like 14 questions. I don't think we're going to make it through all of them, depending on how long your answers are, but we'll see. So the first question that was submitted is, why did you become a therapist? Mm. Why I became a therapist, you know, for for me, it was something always on sort of on the tip of my tongue, you know, in the back of my mind, I, um, started reading books on therapy and, and, you know, motivational speakers. And then I started going to therapy and I was like, I think I could do this. I think I might want to do this. And I tried to skirt it for as long as I could, because the idea of sitting in an office, talking to people all day at the time, you know, paled in comparison to the idea of becoming a world famous actor with millions and millions of dollars and all of the things that that came, that I thought would come with that. And then gradually as I grew and I matured and I realized the, the work that I actually wanted to do in the world and the impact that I wanted to have on the people that, that would come to see me, then my view on therapy and doing it for a living changed. But if I was to actually answer it with some semblance of therapeutic mind, I would say that perhaps I was, I am in my, in my work healing the thing I never saw. I never saw a lot of connective, loving, fulfilling romance in my, in my life growing up. I said, I was born to a 15 year old mother in abject poverty and there wasn't a lot of extras in that upbringing and extras certainly do include, you know, romantic love and the, the, the sort of lavish romantic love. I'd like to, to, to really think of it like that because pragmatism rules the day. And, and I'm not saying the people who are in poverty can't uh, love each other lavishly. I'm just saying the people around me didn't. And so I then saw 
the romance and love that I was, I was witnessing in, in the movies and TV shows and reading about in books and hearing about in songs. And I was like, that sounds amazing. I like to do that. And I, so I think what I'm doing now is I'm, I'm healing probably some deep wounds within me through, through my work. If I'm honest. Yeah. I love that. Um, okay. Does what is said in a therapy session really stay between us? Does what was said in a therapy session actually stay just between the client and the therapist? Correct. That's the question. The answer is yes and no. So yes, I, I there's, there's obviously client confidentiality that is paramount. Having said that, the caveat that I put on it to all my clients when they come in the door is that I will speak to one other person and that would be my supervisor. And all good therapists have someone helping to supervise them, someone that you can go to and say, hey, what are your thoughts on this? Right. And, and that's just good practice for any therapist to have someone who's perhaps been in it a little bit longer or as long, but has a different mind than you. So you can take your work there. And if something gives you pause, if you're, you feel like you're on the line with a particular intervention or a, a directional that you might give a client, you can run that one past them and they can check you and say, you know, that, that might not be the best or yeah, no, you're, you're spot on. Keep, keep heading in that direction. The hubris, I think, of, of so many therapists is to not have that because you've been in it a long time and, you know, I could fill that spot with a client. You know, having somebody, a colleague, a trusted colleague or a mentor in place that you can bring that to is, I think, is really important. So, no, you, you will share some of that information with someone else, but I can let people know that there is a third party and everyone seems pretty on board with it because it's just good. It's good, healthy practice. Sure. Sure. So one of the questions that was asked is do therapists go to therapy? Um, and I think a good segue is also is your supervisor also your therapist or are they two separate relationships? So my supervisor who's really no longer my supervisor, but he was my therapist. So yes, like I used that guy for dual purposes. Often the supervision that any one therapist might get is not even about the supervision of a particular client. It's really just about how you're doing. A lot of therapists don't go to therapy, which to me is, you know, that's, that can be dangerous work. Um, I think the least effective, most dangerous, if that's the right word, um, therapists out there are the ones who aren't doing their own work, who aren't checking themselves, who aren't reading books or staying up on, on the, the latest theories and, and, or are not going to therapy and, or supervision. Some version of all of that is fine enough. Um, for me, I wouldn't necessarily be in therapy all the time, but I would be going to supervision. I'd be talking about my, it would be like professional therapy, really. Like how am I reflecting within myself, within my, within my profession, if that makes sense. So some version of that. And for me, I'm, I'm always doing my own work. Mm -hmm. I'm always reading books. I'm always reflecting on what's going on for me personally, what's coming up, all of that. Mm -hmm. I think that answered your question. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's a great answer and really interesting because I, I was always curious about like, well, you guys hear some serious shit. How do you take care of yourselves? So uh, it makes a lot of sense. Well, we do hear a lot of really heavy shit. You know, some of it can 
be re-traumatizing if you have your own trauma. So if you're a, if you are a therapist who happens to be a, uh, an adult who survived childhood abuse at some level, and you see that same uh, level of abuse come through your door, you should have someone that you're talking to about that because it will be traumatizing. It will be re-triggering at some level. My mentor used to say to me, she said, because I've had several She's this one in particular said, your, your wounding, your trauma will walk through your door. And I remember when it did. And it was a young woman. She was, you know, she came in, it was winter. She had a coat on and she took off her coat to reveal like probably a seven, eight month pregnant belly. And then she proceeded to unpack the story of, you know, being a young mom on her own, having nobody, um, being impoverished. And, you know, to that point, I was operating in the hubris that most young therapists do. And I was sort of like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I was immediately shaken. Um, and I felt it in the moment that there, this, this was my mother. I am in that womb, you know, was sort of the sense I had gotten of it. And I immediately ran to my supervisor and, and some colleagues and, and unpacked it. And what's more is, a it, it can come at you in ways that you don't expect. For instance, I had just become a dad, you know, and, and my young, my youngest or my oldest Jake was, you know, he was probably two or three at the time, maybe two. And this man came through the door and he started talking about having been uh, molested by his father at that exact age. And, you know, I was traumatized in a different way in the sense that the vulnerability of my own child, I could suddenly see this young man, this man as a young, younger version of himself. And I was immediately thrown into this like trauma vortex around it. I didn't let him know it at the time. But I was glad to have people that I could take that to. And it riddled me to, 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 to see the vulnerability of my young child and to see how terribly wounded this person was at the hands of someone who, who was entrusted with his safety. Yeah. It fucked me yeah. up. So my point in bringing those up is you don't know how that's coming at you, but it's coming. And it's one of the pitfalls of being in this and having an empathetic heart. And if, if it doesn't ever come at you, then you're perhaps not doing something right. Is there a specific way that you chose your supervisor or was it just that they were already a mentor and it was a natural progression of things? I ended up with mine through our first training, which was at the Helix training program. I got two there and plus a cadre of, you know, of like-minded professionals at my same level, but different minds, very, very smart uh, people like colleagues I could take things to. That's that supervision as well. Then there was mandatory group supervision and, and, and individual supervision when I went and got my clinical license. And so I had that there. Now I have the added benefit of being married to a therapist. So, you know, if there's something like burning a hole in my pocket, I won't name names, obviously, but I, I can take that to her because she is, you know, a consummate professional in, in, in and of herself. And so I can, I can, I can bring any number of things to her as well. So, you know, the, the bases are, are well covered and yeah, they sort of just presented themselves, but by and large, I picked people that I revered, you know, people that I thought were really fucking smart. Yeah, smarter than me, which is often her. It doesn't take much, but yes. <laughs> don't, don't let that get out there. Lindsay, cut that. <laughs> <laughs> um, a good segue into questions somebody would ask if they're seeing you. 
starting with when is the best time to bring up relationship issues? The best time to bring up relationship issues for me is kind of before they're happening, right? Before we're mired in all the emotionality and the feelings and before scar tissue sets in. And that's why I always say, and you've heard me say this before, that people who come early and often, they, they tend not to need me as much later on. You want to get the practices under your belt. You want to get into good uh, habituations with your partner early and often. And what I say is, you know, we are building a culture between us in a relationship. Most of the time we just do it sort of um, unconsciously or on autopilot. We bring and recreate some semblance of the relationships we've seen. And we do that unconsciously. With my couples, especially the ones who have the forethought to come early, I let them know that we are building a culture and we should mindfully decide what is a part of that culture. What are we going, what are the rules of engagement? What are the agreements around, around arguing, around money, around conversation, around communication, all of the really important things. And, you know, some people might be saying it's almost like a, a, a pre-cana kind of um, pre-marital sort of intervention Sure. Um, that's what the intention of that is. Those are typically brief therapies, maybe five to eight sessions. It's not enough. You know, we're changing habits. We're changing the synapse of our minds. We're trying to, to take advantage of neuroplasticity. That's going to take a little time. It's much easier to do it before those habits set in. And when we build that culture, we have something to look for, look toward. Something we can say, you know, this is, these are the, these are the things we agreed upon and we continue to agree, agree upon them through our behavior again and again and again. So early is way better. And before the resentment sends in and before the scar tissue happens. So I want to talk about relationship and fighting. Cause I think those are two really important common things that happen. Mm -hmm. We fight in our relationships, mm -hmm. but one of the questions was how do you normalize fighting in a relationship? Mm -hmm. What's too much fighting? What's too little fighting? How do you kind of find that balance? What's appropriate? If a couple says to me, we never fight, yep. red flag. Mm -hmm. Yes. Immediately. Yeah. Like, because fighting is great because then you get to make well, up. Right. And you look, know? it's, it's. And let me tell you, Corey's <laughs> not just the good one. He's good in bed too. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's why I poke that bear all As you the should. time. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> Let's try to bug him. See what we can get. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I, I think fighting's it's a it's a prerequisite. You need it. It's necessary. It's necessary because we are going to bump into each other, and we are in in the bumping in. We are noticing those those places that that our core wounding perhaps is coming up. And if we're being too nice, we're probably being too nice because of our because of some sort of trauma in our you know, in our, in our childhood that says it's not okay for you to bring your opinions here. And so that's a red flag for that reason too. But to my other earlier point that we are pushing up on each other's core wounding, that's in part what we're doing in romantic relationships. It's not about puppy dogs and rainbows, as I've said before, it's really about two people coming together and mindfully and skillfully, if you can, helping to heal one another, not your job is not to heal your partner, but when that stuff comes up, like in my relationship, often what comes up is, for example, um, the world is an unsafe place. I don't feel like I matter. I'm not enough. Um, you know, those types of core wounding pieces, most couples stop there 
at the pain and fail to realize that what you're here to do is actually move past that pain and hold space for each other so that that healing can happen. And so I, I think I'm answering your question. I sometimes get a little, little, you know, long in my answers, but yeah, I think, uh, fighting should happen. It's not if it's how to, right. We want to make sure that we're doing that and not incurring more wounding and not doling more out for our partners because we're doing it toxically. Right. It's about fighting, but fighting in a way that's not causing trauma. You know, <laughs> you can say the shit that's on your mind, mm-hmm. but just make sure mm-hmm. it's not fucking nasty. <laughs> right. Okay? And, you know, that goes back to that er- statement I made earlier about culture. Part of your culture should be how we fight. How do how do we talk to each other? How do we talk to each other when we are yeah, enlivened, yeah. when we are emotional? You know, especially couples who who are quite passionate about each other. The, the pendulum of passion swings both ways. You can be quite passionate about each other and be quite impassioned during a fight and say and do things that you end up having to apologize for later. You want to get on those habitual pieces early and those, those, those ideas of what's okay and what's not okay early so that you can set those ground rules. Couples who don't, then the boundary markers keep getting moved again and again and again. And pretty soon, you know, you're doing and saying shit to the person that you are the most intimate with that you wouldn't do and say to your best friend, client, colleague, boss, right? And I think we need to turn that on its head. We need to be able to treat our partners with grace and reverence that perhaps we don't have for anybody else. That's what makes a relationship particularly special in my book. You you taught us that. The the love contract, is that what you call it? But basically the the idea of what you just talked about, which is you set the ground rules for the fight. And for me, I, I think I talked to you about this a little privately, but I had said Corey leaving mm-hmm. is like a huge trigger for me. I have big abandonment issues. Mm -hmm. And so we had to sit down and have a conversation about if you do need to walk away, Mm -hmm. there's a time limit on it, you know, things like that. And when you leave that, it's like, I love you. Mm -hmm. Everything's okay, but I need to cool off, you know, and things like that, that really changed the dynamic of how we fought. So I wanted to go into the next question, which again is around problems in relationships. And it's for our listeners with penises, does problem in relationship cause erectile dysfunction? Well, yes and no. The primary cause of erectile dysfunction tends to be something physical, whether that be high blood pressure, smoking, all the different things that that cause the, cause the erectile dysfunction often live within the body. And so the first order of any therapist is to say, you need to go get a physical. We need to rule that out first before we start moving through any other interventions. Now, stress in the relationship of various kinds can cause erectile dysfunction. I've certainly seen that. And uh, well, stress in general can cause erectile dysfunction. But then when you add on things like stress in the relationship, shame, shaming in the bedroom. If for whatever reason there has been performance anxiety for a man and someone, his partner then shames him about it, it then redoubles the stress, right? And so it's almost like a panic attack. Most people's panic sets in the idea that they may have another panic attack. Well, that's kind of what happens here too, right? The idea that this could happen again, it could happen again. Oh my God, it's happening again. Is it happening again? I think it might be happening again. And so you have all of that. If, if you don't have someone with you who is a 
you know, a fellow traveler on whatever journey this particular thing is for you around ED. And you have someone who's just sort of going, what's wrong with you? Uh, first of all, you, you need to look at the viability of the relationship because that is, that is nothing short of toxic and abusive. Yeah, it's horrible, but I see it a lot where really I think what's happening is that person's wondering, you know, what's wrong with deep down? They're wondering what's wrong with me that you're not getting it up. Is there something wrong with me? Do you not find me attractive anymore? And that rebounds out of them onto their partner is what's wrong with you? What's going on with you? And so I say that the bedroom needs to be one of the safest places in the entire world. You have to think about it, man. It's like, I don't care what you're doing in there. It's fucking vulnerable. And, you know, if you you think about it, if it's a heterosexual relationship and you're like, it's, I tell men all the time, you need to remember that this woman is allowing a part of your body into hers. Holy shit. You need to make that as safe a place as you possibly can. And for, for, for men, whether it's a homosexual, heterosexual, whatever your, your, your incantation of, of uh, sexuality is, you know, the moment a man has some version of a problem with, you know, his penis or erectile dysfunction at some level or inability to ejaculate or ejaculating too quickly, he gets right in his head. It's, it, it's incredibly shaming and shameful feeling. I don't yeah. think it's shameful. It's shameful Horrible. feeling. And yeah. one of the quickest ways to find your way out of that is compassion, is empathy, is understanding, is meeting them in that place and making sure that that problem is not a you problem. It's a we problem. And I, I want to talk a little bit about the other side of the coin for people with uteruses that like, just because you can't see the dysfunction, mm-hmm. you know, because you're not, it's not right there in front of your face, there can still be the same sorts of dysfunction of just not feeling aroused, not feeling like you want to be in bed with that person, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, there's stuff that have to be, has to be worked on on that side of things too. And I wondered if you wanted to add to that. Well, I mean, I think what we've done to women around their bodies is fucking unconscionable anyway. And so the idea that, you know, a woman wouldn't have, sometimes they don't have some issues sexually. If they do, you know, again, that's that place of, can you find compassion, empathy, and understanding? A lot of, I know that, you know, what I see in my practice is, you know, sometimes men don't. And again, I think sometimes it's that rebounding effect of, well, you're not turned on me. Why, why can't you, why can't you come? Well, a lot of women don't have you know, orgasms that way, uh, through intercourse. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you, dude. It's just something that's, I mean, the female body is incredibly intricate and who the fuck knows the best thing you can do is get on board, make that a, we issue and get really fucking curious about her body, what she's thinking, what she's feeling, what's going on in her head as this is happening. And if it's something that feels like it's out of both of your wheelhouses, you should definitely talk to somebody. And, you know, let's see if there's something in there that uh, needs, needs some work and needs some attention from a professional. I love that. I think we're going to have to do a two-part episode, though, because I oh, still shit. have a ton of questions that I want to ask you. But we're <laughs> out of time. So yeah. thank you so <laughs> for joining us for Not Your Mama's Therapy Q&A Part 1. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram, M- NYM Therapy. Twitter is the same way. You can email us, notyourmamastherapy at gmail.com. 
You can buy Lair's book, The mm. Practice of Love, at all online and in-store retailers, brick-and-mortar retailers. And you can also follow Lair on Instagram, Lair Torrent Holistic Therapist. Is that right? That's correct. I'm so mm-hmm. good. And don't forget, I have a six-week couple's live online workshop coming out based on the book, The Practice of Love. I unpack all five of the practices over the course of six weeks and you'll get to meet with me and we'll go through these practices and give you um, real-time coaching around uh, how to implement them within your relationship. And you can find more out about that on my website at LairTorrent.com, but especially at LairTorrent.com. Holistic Therapist. I have a Linktree account right there. And I just like to add, this is like an incredible value, truly, to be able to like sit with you Mm -hmm. directly and talk to you and hear from you and listen and learn from you. It's such a big opportunity. It's like one of the first classes you've hosted like this, right? It is. I haven't done one of these since New York. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So huge deal. Get in there. Be a part of this. Get your firsthand experience with Lair. And we'll see you next week for Q&A part two. All right. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, everybody. I'm Mr. B.